Church, as the kids are making their way to their classroom, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Jude. Last week, we started our little five-week study through this incredibly power-packed, small, but um, very impactful letter towards the end of the New Testament. And uh, we didn't get very far. We got two verses in. And this morning, we're really going to hit the accelerator and cover two more verses. So Jude 3 and 4 this morning. Several years ago, our family went on a family vacation. It was a family reunion of sorts in uh, Dauphin Island, Alabama, um, on the west, off the western coast of uh, the uh, Mobile Bay. And uh, it was a, a vacation that we had looked forward to. We had family coming from all over Uh, the country down there, and on the second day of our vacation, the police came by and said, you need to evacuate because a hurricane is bearing down on the Gulf Coast. So we're we're evacuating the island. And so, of course, we were bummed. We were sad. Uh, The next morning, we packed up, we got our things in the car, and then we kind of gathered as a family um, on the, uh, the central beach house that we were in, and we were just looking out over the horizon, and wouldn't you know, it, it, was, it was as calm as a lake, it was, it was just clear skies, we couldn't see anything, but, but, we, but we knew that there was a storm that was coming, it was, it was uh, forecasted to hit in just uh, a matter of 24 hours, and so it was bearing down, but we couldn't see it, there was nothing there. But as we're sitting there looking out on the ocean, getting ready to leave and go our separate ways, uh, these workers who had apparently been employed by the owner of the beach house start walking up the back steps with big old sheets of plywood ready to, to make the house storm ready for the storm that was coming. The beach house was about to be assaulted by a hurricane that we couldn't see. It was there. It was just over the horizon, but we couldn't see it. And there was potential for great damage and harm to this beach house. And so these guys were putting uh, sheets of plywood over the windows and over the doors. And they were sealing all potential entry points where water could get into the house and cause damage. And they were securing all of the, the furniture and implements that were outside by bringing them inside the house. They weren't fighting the storm. They weren't fighting the wind and the rain and the storm surge, but rather they were fighting, they were contending, they were struggling to prepare the house to be able to withstand the storm that was coming. Well, in the letter of Jude, and in particularly in the verses that we'll look at this morning, Jude is warning his readers that an enemy is attacking their faith. He identifies the enemy. He tells them what the enemy is doing and how they're attacking. But more importantly, he tells his readers what they must do in response, that they must contend for the faith. And this contending, though it carries the connotation of fighting, Jude doesn't tell his readers to fight the enemy or to contend with the enemy, but rather to contend for the faith, to shore up the entry points and make our house storm ready so that no matter how fierce the attack becomes, the house, our faith, will not fall. It will not be shaken. And instead, it will stand strong. So let's read Jude 3 and 4 and see how Jude urges his readers to prepare for the coming storm. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just for the privilege of being able to celebrate baptism this morning. Just, just see portrayed in front of us the gospel, how you take a sinner who deserves judgment and you bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus and you turn them into a saint. What glorious gospel that is. What a glorious salvation that represents. How beautiful that is, Father. And it represents a a, a faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. And Father, that faith is under attack in our day and in our culture. And so Father, show us how we must respond in light of that. Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to equip the saints to be inspired and to be equipped to contend for the faith in our various spheres of influence in which we find ourselves, most importantly, here in this body of believers called New Branch, in the church, Lord, that we would contend for the faith, for your glory, and for the joy and delight of generations to come. I pray that you would do this by your grace and for your glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw last week how Jude, how Jude reinforced the identity of the believer in the opening couple of verses in the greeting and salutation. And there we learn that the regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, the one who has repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because, because of our rebellion against God, the one who's repented of that sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, he is a bondservant of Jesus, a glad bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been called to this faith, who has been loved with a regenerating and, and rescuing love, and who will be kept for and by Jesus Christ, kept in the faith to the very end. And we talked about how our identity as a bondservant of Jesus, who is called, loved, and kept, that identity can and should give us courage and confidence when we're called upon to contend for the faith. But now here in these verses, verses 3 and 4, this is the very core of the letter. Here we're given the reason for why Jude writes this letter. Now that they know who they are, now that they have a firm, firm grip on their identity, now he tells them, he urges them to contend for the faith. Now it's interesting how he starts this. Uh, he starts in verse 3 with beloved, which, which first is reminiscent of their identity that he covered in the first couple of verses. There he said, you are beloved in the, in, in the Father, in God the Father. You are beloved but, but this also tells us why he's even writing a letter to them. Because he loves them. He cares for them. And out of his deep love, concern, and care for his readers, he writes to warn them. He writes to urge them to be watchful because a storm is on the horizon and it's coming to damage their faith. But he says that he originally meant to write about something else. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So he was going to write about something, and then he ended up writing about something else. He was going to write about their common salvation, but, but something happened. And I think it's just very interesting that in God's divine wisdom, it's recorded for us in the scriptures that Jude was going to write this, and now he's going to write about this. And of course, we know that all scriptures are inspired by God and profitable. So what can we conclude from that? I think we can conclude three things. First, that we share a common salvation. Number two, that, that it is good and right to be eager about that common salvation, to write about it, learn about it to bask in it. And then thirdly, 
that upon consideration of their common salvation, it was upon consideration of how beautiful it is that Jude was prompted to write to contend for it. So what is this common salvation that we share? The words there in the Greek are, are koinos soteria, literally the, the shared together salvation. He's referring here to the gospel, the good news that though man is sinful and separated from God, both in this life and the next because of his sin and rebellion against God, God has made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. And that way that he made was a means of soteria. It was a means of being saved. And that means of being saved was sending his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that none of us could, to achieve a righteousness before God that none of us could in a million lifetimes, and then to go to the cross and to pay the debt that we deserve because of our rebellion against God, absorbing God's wrath against sin on our behalf and defeating the power of sin and death for all those who would place their faith in him. And Jesus not only died for us, but he rose from the dead, proving that God had accepted his substitutionary sacrifice as full and sufficient payment for the sins of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone as their Lord and Redeemer. This is how sinners are saved. And church, this is how all sinners who are saved are saved. And there's nothing common about it. It's glorious. It's amazing. Yes, it's shared. It's common in that sense, but it's anything but common. This is how all those who are saved are saved. The grace that saved me from what I deserved also saved Joseph Roberts from what he deserved and Bob Pingle from what he deserved and Rachel Boucher from what she... It's the same grace. Jesus not only reconciled me back to the Father, he reconciled my bride back to the Father. He reconciled Steve back to the Father. He reconciled sweet Mrs. Kolb back to the Father. Ours is a common salvation, a shared story of extravagant grace and mercy. And it is good and right to be eager about it. To, to, to be eager to write about it, to be eager to read about it, to be eager to learn about it, and church, to be eager to bask in the glorious majesty of what he's done for us in Christ. This is what Jude was so very eager to write about, and it is good and right for us to bask in the glory of our glorious shared salvation in Christ. So amazing that he has done this for anyone but he's done it for sinners like us. We should want to bask in that. For church, as we do, as we consider how precious and glorious our shared salvation in Christ is, we would do well to heed the warning from Jude that there's a storm on the horizon coming to do damage to that faith. For as Jude is con contemplating here our common salvation, it is then that he is prompted and compelled even to, to instead write to them, urging them to contend for the faith. And this is what he does in the remainder of verse 3 and verse 4. He gives an argument, and his argument goes like this. We have a faith, and he gives several descriptions of that faith. That faith is under attack. And he gives several descriptions of the kinds of people that are attacking that faith and what they're doing. And then his conclusion is, so we must contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith. And that is a rock-solid argument. There is a faith. It's precious. It's glorious. It's valuable. It's under attack. Not just in his day, but in ours. And so we must contend for it. And so let's use that 
argument as our guide for the rest of our time together this morning. First, we have a faith. And there are four descriptions that he gives here of that faith in verse 3. First, we see that it's the faith. He doesn't say contend for faith or contend for a faith, but contend for the faith. In the original language, it's the definite article the that's in front of the word faith. And this is represented of the body of belief. He's not talking here about our, our personal faith or our, our personal beliefs, but rather the body of doctrine that we believe together. Jude is not simply saying fight to believe, but rather fight for what you believe. There's a reference here. This is a reference to the content of our faith. And because it's a reference to the content of the faith, I think it's interesting to note here that Jude is writing this um, somewhere around the, the 60s AD. So 30 to 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And already, already there is sufficient consensus about what followers of Christ believe such that Jude can say, contend for the faith. That's very, very close to when these things actually happened. The canon of Scripture doesn't close until the 4th century, but what constitutes Christian religion and practices, the faith, is already established here in the 1st century. Ours is an apostolic faith, an ancient faith, and church, it's all right here. This contains the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's all in this book. All we need for life and godliness is here. And it is worth contending for. And it is worth fighting to keep it pure and unchanged. That's the first thing we learn about it. It is the faith. Secondly, this faith has been delivered. Jude says that it's been delivered to the saints. And it was delivered to us by God. The New American Standard Translation says it was handed down to the saints. Handed down from whom? From God to the saints. Ours is a given faith. It's not a faith that is according to anyone's personal opinions or preferences. It is not something that comes from any person. Rather, it is handed down to us from God himself. He originally gave it to the apostles in the first century who wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then it was handed down to us in the Bible. So it is a given faith. It was delivered. Thirdly, it was delivered once for all. He said it is once for all delivered to the saints. Which means that there is no more delivering going on. It's been delivered. It is once for all delivered. This reminds us that there are boundaries around the faith. It's a defined faith. We're not to add anything to it or take anything away from it. It is unchanging. It doesn't evolve. It, it doesn't progress while the culture around us and everything in it changes constantly, our faith doesn't change because the Word of God doesn't change. And so it's once for all delivered. And then fourthly, it was once for all delivered to whom? It was given to the saints. And he's not talking about a football team from New Orleans. Nor, listen, nor... Is he talking about some superclass of Christians who are holier and more important than the rest of us? When the New Testament refers to the saints, it's simply talking about normal run-of-the-mill Christians. What a glorious thought that sinners like you and I have been made into saints. The word saint means holy one. It means literally the set-apart ones, set apart unto God. And while there are certainly parts of us, parts of our flesh, 
that have yet to be redeemed and done away with and crucified in God's eyes, fantastically under the, the, the blood spilt by Jesus at Calvary, in God's eyes, we have already been made into saints. Now, we don't, we don't venerate saints in the Protestant tradition, but that's what we are, and we could refer to one another in that way. It could be St. Kristen and St. Justin and St. Chris, St. Jonathan, because that's what we are. He has made us to be saints. Incredibly, we are dirty, rotten, smelly, self-exalting, Christ-hating sinners who by the sovereign grace and mercy of God have been changed and transformed into saints of the living God in whom resides the very spirit of Christ the Lord. How amazing is that? And friend, we have been entrusted with this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's been handed down to us, this pure, holy, unchanging body of faith and Christian belief and doctrine. It's been entrusted to us. So that is the faith. That's Jude's first premise here. That there is a faith, a, a body of belief that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's his first premise. His second premise is that faith is being attacked. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So here's the hurricane bearing down on the beach house. Certain people are attacking the faith. And he gives five descriptions here of these people. What do we know about these people who were Attacking the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. First, they snuck in unnoticed. They snuck in un unnoticed. He says there in verse 4, for certain people crept in unnoticed. Note that in order for them to creep in, they first had to be outside, right? They were outside, but now they're in. What are they in, by the way? Well, he, he's not talking here. He can't be talking about salvation because you can't sneak into salvation. He's talking here about the church and the local church. So these guys were outside the local church and, and they crept in unnoticed. Well, how did that happen? We don't know specifically. The word doesn't tell us exactly how they crept in unnoticed, but the fact that they went unnoticed should have implications for how we do membership in the local church. You see, at New Branch, you can't just walk an aisle and tell us that you want to be a member of our church. Why? Because we don't want anyone to creep in unnoticed, especially not someone who isn't regenerate. Instead, there's a very definitive process you need to attend a membership class that's extensive. You need to fill out a membership application. You need to sign a membership covenant. You need to be interviewed by a couple of elders. You need to be observed by the church for a season. And then finally, as we'll do with Oriana in just a few moments, you will be voted on by the church as to whether or not to make you a member. Why? So that nobody creeps in unnoticed. And so that we know everyone who comes in. And so that we know as best as we can whether or not they are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. But that's not what happened here. And it did damage to the faith. Some people crept in unnoticed. And the fact that they crept in unnoticed suggests that they did this intentionally. They were deliberately deceptive in this. We could say that they were wolves wearing sheep's clothing. They were pretending to be sheep, which is part of why they were able to come in unnoticed, because they looked like sheep. They sounded like sheep. 
They acted like sheep to a certain degree. They had fish emblems on the back of their camels. They looked like sheep, but they were in fact wolves. And because they were wolves, there's another thing that we know about them. And that is that their destruction was marked out long ago. Soberingly, the ESV says here, certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for destruction. Listen to some other English translations. The NIV says, whose condemnation was written about long ago. New American Standard, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. And the King James, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. The word for designated, ordained, or written about is a word that has something to do with writing. It is prographo, which, which includes the word, word, root word grapho, which means writing. And so I think the idea here is that this destruction, this, this condemnation of these people, or, or these kinds of people who would pretend to be God's people but really aren't, and they're just sneaking in to, to change and pervert and dilute the faith, their condemnation, their destruction was written about long ago, determined long ago. And as we look at the rest of the letter, specifically in the passage that we'll cover next week, we're going to see some of the Old Testament prophets who wrote about these kinds of people and the destruction that awaited them. But the point here is that God is not taken by surprise when this happens. These wolves in sheep clothing may have snuck in unnoticed by us, but they didn't escape the notice of God. He knew who they were. He knew about them long before they ever tried to sneak in. He knew what they would do. He knew that they were bad news. He knew the danger that they demonstrated, and so they were designated for destruction. And the punishment that God planned for them was written about long ago as the prophet spoke forth God's words. But what we need to learn from this phrase here is that the folks who do this deserve God's judgment and will receive God's judgment. That's how valuable this faith is that was once for all delivered to the saints. Those who attack it, seek to change it, pervert it, dilute it, are marked for condemnation. It's that serious. And the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is that precious and that valuable. These people who were attacking the faith, first, they crept in unnoticed. Second, they were marked out for condemnation. Thirdly, they were deceptively ungodly and irreligious. In verse 4, Jude says that they are ungodly people. That word there literally means that they were irreligious. They were without devoutness. There was a fakiness to their religion. It was superficial. It was just for show. They were ungodly. It wasn't genuine. They pretended to be godly, but they were in fact ungodly. They had an appearance of godliness, of being religious and devout, but it was just for show. This word describes someone who is insincere in their worship of God. Quite literally because they don't have a relationship with God. And while we might know what this looks like for an unbeliever who is pretending to be a believer, a wolf in sheep's clothing. We might have a category for that. Church, what about when a believer takes on that kind of quality? Where their outward worship is just a show, but the inward condition of their soul is cold and dry and parched. Church, we can never lose our salvation. I hope you heard that loud and clear from God's word last week. Once we have come to faith genuinely in Jesus Christ, we're his. And there's nothing that can be done to change that. And as we learned from the passage last week, he will keep us to the very end. And yet, 
it is possible for a genuine believer to grow cold in their relationship with God. Whether it's because of years of neglecting the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and so forth, and over time they just grow cold in their walk with Jesus. Or whether it's because there's been a long season of refusing to confess and repent of indwelling sin. Or whether it's just been a long season of spiritual drought. And for a variety of reasons, you just don't sense the nearness of God like you once did. When this happens, the believer's heart begins to grow cold. It grows cold in their fellowship and relationship with God. But for some, in order to keep up appearances, they just, just keep going through the motions of worshiping like a happy Christian, serving like a happy Christian, going to Bible study like a happy Christian, because that's what happy Christians do. But in reality, their soul is cold and dry. Listen, both of these, whether it's the ungodly unbeliever who's pretending to be godly or the believer whose soul has grown cold and dry who's pretending to be godly, in both cases, there is potential for great harm and damage to the faith itself. Because both are believing and telling a lie about the gospel both its content, its implications, and its applications. And both are susceptible to temptation and doubt and compromise. Now, now contending for the faith is going to look extraordinarily different for those two kinds of people. But both require that we, you and I, contend for the faith with them and for them. Contend for the faith because both of them represent potential damage and compromise to the faith. So what else does Jude tell us about these people who were attacking the faith once for all delivered? Fourth, they perverted God's grace into a license to sin. The ESV says in verse 4, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The NIV says they perverted into immorality. New American Standard says licentiousness, and I love the King James Version here. It says lasciviousness, unbridled, wanton passions, what they give themselves to. The word that's used here is very interesting in the Greek. It is a compound word with the, with the negative prefix. It's the ah prefix, which, prefix, which makes something the negative of the word. And that negative prefix is coupled with the word selges, which means continent. And the opposite of continent is incontinent. That word understandably has a negative connotation in our culture because it's most often used to refer to someone who has the inability to control their bladder. But aside from that connotation, it simply means out of control. The inability to control is what it means. And so it's used in the New Testament to refer to unbridled and out of control immorality. Just unbridled vice with no restrictions. But, but here's what Jude tells us. He tells us that these people were perverting God's grace into a license for that kind of unbridled immorality. They were saying, hey, I can live however I want because God forgives me. God is a God of love and, and, and grace. He won't judge me or, or, or punish me. He'll forgive me. And so why not give full vent to my unbridled passions? Eat, drink, and be merry because God has forgiven me. In church, of course, we know that to be a lie. And we know that that does damage to the faith if we don't contend against it and expose that for the lie that it is. But while most of us 
don't give in to that kind of unbridled sin and immorality. And we wouldn't give any quarter in the church for that kind of thinking and certainly not that kind of lifestyle. And yet, many times we do leave room in our own lives, in our own churches even, for what we might call acceptable sins, acceptable vices. The kind of unbridled wanton lust and lasciviousness that Jude speaks of here and that, and that Paul speaks of in, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, we all know and would agree that that kind of stuff is clearly off limits for the follower of Christ and is obviously contradictory to the faith once delivered to the saints. But what about those acceptable sins, those acceptable vices? They're smaller sins, the kinds of sins that we easily overlook. And they're seemingly small and insignificant because as we look around, everybody else is doing them. And we might even make light of them, even in our own Christian circles. Church, when we presume upon God's grace and we knowingly and repeatedly give in to even those kinds of acceptable sins, we're doing the very same thing. We're perverting God's grace as a license to sin. And every time we do that, we're chipping away at the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're buying into lies about grace and about the gospel. We're compromising truth by believing those lies. And the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is besieged by a bombardment of our perversion of the grace of God. Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul answers his own rhetorical question. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? John writes in 1 John 1 verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Perverting God's grace into a license to sin has nothing whatsoever to do with the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And the integrity of that faith is compromised and threatened when we give ourselves in to either unbridled immorality or acceptable immorality. And then the fifth and final thing uh, that describes the people who were attacking the faith is that they denied the sovereign rule and reign of Jesus. Look at the end of verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The word master in the Greek there is despotes, and it means absolute ruler and authority. Absolute rule and authority. And the word Lord, of course, is kurios, which means Lord or sovereign. So, so these people were denying that Jesus Christ is master and Lord. They were denying the lordship of Christ. They were denying that Jesus had any authority over them. They were saying, in essence, I'll accept Jesus because I, I, I want to be forgiven and I want eternal life. But I don't think I want him to be my Lord, my despotes. I don't want him to call the shots. I want to call the shots for me, not Jesus. And so I'll accept him as Savior, of course, but not as Lord. And church, the Bible knows nothing of that kind of faith. The kind of, that kind of thinking has absolutely nothing to do with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints teaches that everything in the universe is in subjection to Jesus Christ. Everything. That he has dominion and authority over everything. The universe, the earth, the world, our country, our state, our church, our family, 
and ourselves. He is Lord and he does have authority. And there is no such thing as receiving his grace and forgiveness without also accepting gladly his absolute supreme authority and lordship over our lives. And to live in such a way that says otherwise is to live in direct contradiction to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now we know that some of these people who were attacking the faith that Jude refers to here were false teachers. And we know that because of the rest of the letter that we'll get to. But here at this point, I think it's interesting to note that Jude says nothing about what they teach. Rather, he's talking about how they live and how they live in the church. Now, perhaps their denial of the lordship and authority of Christ was explicit and verbal, but because of everything else that I read in Jude 3 and 4, I think that perhaps it wasn't. Remember, they crept in unnoticed. They were deceptively irreligious. In many cases, they were wolves, but they looked like sheep. They were pretending, and, and apparently quite convincingly, they were pretending that they were genuine followers of Jesus when they really weren't. And I don't think you can, that you can do any of that while being explicit and verbal in your denial of Jesus Christ. Rather, I think their denial of Jesus' authority had more to do with how they were living, what their lives looked like. And perhaps it was subtle. They live like a saint on Sunday, but they live like a heathen the rest of the week. They weren't necessarily, necessarily explicit in their denial of Jesus' lordship and authority. But when you looked and, at their lives, you looked at how they lived, what they did. It was clear that Jesus wasn't their Lord. They were. That Jesus wasn't calling the shots. They were calling their own shots. And church, if we're not careful to contend for the faith, the very same thing that can begin to happen in our own lives. And again, that kind of living, that kind of thinking has nothing to do with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we follow Jude's argument here. There was a faith, a beautiful, incredible, valuable, precious faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and trusted to the saints. Secondly, that faith is under attack by these people who are creeping in, sheeps in wolf clothing that look like sheep but really aren't. They're trying to pervert the grace of God into a license to sin, and they're denying the lordship and authority of Jesus. And so as a result of that, Jesus exhorts, excuse me, Jude exhorts his readers and us to contend for the faith. And this command, remember, this is a command that is given to the saints this is a command that's given to all believers, not just to pastors and elders to contend for the faith. This is something that we must all do. This letter is not written just to pastors and elders. It is written to all who are called, loved, and kept by and for Jesus Christ. The faith was once for all delivered to all of us. It was entrusted to all of us. And so all of us are to contend for the faith. The word contend here means to fight for, and there's an earnestness to it. In fact, the New American Standard translates this, to contend earnestly for the faith. It's the same root word that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when Paul exhorts young Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. It's the same root, root, root word that we find coming out of Jesus' mouth. In Luke chapter 13, when Jesus said that we, we should strive to enter through the narrow gate. And the Greek carries the connotation of, uh, of a, a striving and a struggling and a, and a fighting, a contending that is serious because there is serious danger at stake. There's a seriousness about this contending because there's a sense that something will be lost if we do not contend. And that's exactly what Jude intends to get across here. 
Now, we don't contend against flesh and blood. And we don't fight with sword and shield. Instead, we fight to believe the gospel every day. And we fight to preserve the gospel in ourselves, in our homes, in our church. We fight to preserve the body of doctrine found in the scriptures that was given to the apostles and handed down by God to you and I, the saints. We fight to to contend earnestly to preserve our fidelity to the Holy Scriptures. And this contending, this this fighting for the faith will will have implications for how we do church, how we do membership, how we do church discipline. It will have implications for how we live, what we do, how we act, the decisions that we make, how we raise our family. It will have implications for how we give attention to our spiritual growth and discipleship and accountability. It will have implications for how we encourage our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to fight against indwelling sin. And so many other areas, this contending for the faith. Jude will deal in a much more practical sense what it looks like to contend for the faith later in this letter in verses 20 through 23. And we're going to cover that in just a couple weeks and what it means and how we apply that. But as we close, I just want you to hear that. I want you to hear Jude as he exhorts practically how to contend for the faith. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And again, we'll talk about what that means and how we apply that in a couple of weeks. But for now, (coughs) Jude simply stresses the importance of contending and the implications if we don't. There's a hurricane brewing over the horizon in our culture. And I think in many ways, it's already here. The outer bands of this hurricane are already begin to besiege the bulwark of our faith. And we feel it. We feel it in our families. We feel it in our churches. We feel it in the culture around us. We feel it in ourselves. And brothers and sisters, if we don't contend for the faith, we just let that storm come. We let the wind and the rain and the storm surge come and have its way. What will remain of our faith? What will be left in the aftermath of that storm? I want to leave you with three considerations as we seek to contend for the faith. Could be a million, but let me just leave you with three. And these aren't on the screen. Number one, bask in the glory of our salvation, our common salvation. Bask in it. Go deep in it. But be watchful for the storm over the horizon. Bask in the glory and the majesty and the goodness of what God has done for us in Christ. But as you bask in that sun, be watchful for the storm that's coming. Be ready for it. Number two, ensure ensure that how you live, what you're doing, what you're doing with your time, what you're doing behind closed doors, ensure that how you're living is not part of the storm. The heart behind 1 John is to aim 
at not sinning ever. We're going to, and there's grace for when we do. But the aim is to never give in and to never, ever be found perverting the gospel of God's grace into a license to sin, as if that is okay. So ensure that you're, you're not part of the storm. And friend, if you are, confess that before God. Repent of that and ask, you, ask him to help you not be part of the storm, but to be used by him to shore up the house and fight against that storm. And then thirdly, go deeper in the faith and resolve to preserve the faith however you can. Go deeper in it. I promise you, you will not plumb the depths of God's love for you, God's holiness, God's goodness. You'll never reach the end of it, but try. Go deeper. Don't be satisfied with superficial Christianity. Go deeper into this faith that has been entrusted to us. And I promise you, the, more, the deeper you get into that faith, the greater appreciation you will have for our amazing God and the firmer a grip you will have on it such that you will be ready to preserve it no matter how bad the storm gets as it comes against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that there is a faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Oh God, thank you so much for the beauty of that faith. How precious it is, Lord. It is blood-bought by your Son. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we take it lightly, the ways in which we just kind of skim over it. Forgive us, Father, for taking it, taking it for granted. Lord, help us to be a people who truly appreciate the faith that you've entrusted to us such that we'll be ready by your grace and for your glory to contend for that faith in our own hearts, in our families, and in our churches to contend for the faith for your glory and again, for the joy and delight of generations to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.